All right, well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been talking about our goal for the year, and uh, we said that our goal for 2012 is basically the same as our goal for 2011, but with a particular twist, okay? We want to know the Word and live the Word, meaning the written Word of God, the Bible that God and grace has given to us yet again this year, but we want to focus our study and time in the Word on the life, on the teachings, on the sufferings, on the death, on the burial, on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why. Here's the real goal. So that when we get to the end of this year, we know him better than we do right now. And our lives look a whole lot more like his life than ours. That's it. So that's our goal for 2012. But we've also said that we're not going to be able to accomplish that goal unless or until we first learn how to read and study the Bible rightly. And the first thing that I've said about that, and I've said this now three weeks, including today is that the Bible is not made to be read quickly. It's not fast food, it's fine dining. It's not McDonald's, it's Morton Steakhouse. It's not something that you pay very little for, drive through in the midst of the madness of your life and pick up, wolf down in six or eight bites, barely chewing, barely tasting, certainly not savoring and hardly digesting any of it. But it's a costly meal. It costs you time, it costs you energy, it costs you effort. As you sit down with it, And take it in, course by course, word by word, phrase by phrase, image by image. The Bible is made to be read slowly. And as you taste it, and as you chew it, and as you savor it, and as you take it in, and as you sit with it and digest it and allow it to have its impact in your life, what happens? It begins to feed your faith, it begins to nourish your souls, and it begins to transform your life. And that's another thing that we've said about God's Word. God did not give us His Word simply to inform us. He gave us His Word that through it He might transform us, and then as we live it out, that He might bring transformation through us. So we're going to know the Word and live the Word again this year, but we're going to focus our time in the Word on Jesus that we might know Jesus better and better reflect Jesus with our lives. So that end, two weeks ago, we started a study of the Gospel of John. We're going to go all the way through. Everybody's excited, but that's because it's week three and not 43. We'll see how you're doing in September, okay? But it's a great study and it's a great book, and I want to pick up right about where we left off last week in John chapter 1. Verse 35, and so if you have your Bibles and? I hope you do, and if you don't, you can get one after the service in the back. Then turn it with me, if you would, to John 1, beginning in verse 35. Now pay attention to the words, bites, bits, savor, chew. John the Apostle who's writing this gospel says this about John the Baptist. He says, the next day, and then here's the next word, again. John, meaning John the Baptist, who we've read all about and learned all about the past couple of weeks, the one who was sent by God to prepare God's people for the coming of God's Messiah and then to definitively identify that Messiah as Jesus Christ. And the next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and tradition has it that John the Apostle was one of those two disciples. We don't know that for sure, but as we read through this text, there are some details like time of day and stuff like that that seem to indicate that maybe he was one of them. Anyway, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he described him exactly the same way as he had the previous day when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, except on the previous day, if you recall from last week, he added, who takes away the sin of the world. 
And so now watch what these guys do. They know the word about Christ, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Watch them live it. It says the two disciples heard John the Baptist say this, and they got the message, and here's how you know if you get the message. You do something with it. And they do something with it. It says, and they follow Jesus, which means at least for those who are tasting and chewing and savoring and taking in and slowly digesting as opposed to driving through and rushing through and checking it off a checklist, for those of us who are willing to sit and savor that and think about it and let the Spirit interact with us, well, it means that following Jesus is first and foremost an expression of our need for a Savior. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they then follow Him. And you can't just race past that. You've got to think about that. And you have to think about yourself in light of that. God is doing some really neat stuff at this church, and I'm so excited about it. And He brings new people every single week, and I, and I meet you, and then I forget your name two seconds after I meet you, and I'm so sorry. But I'm thrilled that you're here. And the truth is, some of the people who are coming right now, if you'd have come to them six months ago and said, you know what, six months from now, you're going to be regularly attending a church and actually looking forward to it, well, you would have laughed us out of the room. So what does that mean then? You're doing something not native to you. You're breaking a pattern, aren't you? That's what God's Spirit is doing in your heart. And some of you are more than just like coming on Sunday. Now you're plugging into a Bible study, you're in one of our women's studies, or maybe you're in a community group and so forth. And so God is working on your heart. But let me tell you the realization that He is working to first bring you to. Let me just be John the Baptist for you for a second. He wants you to behold Christ. Behold! That's a word of sight. He's saying, look at Jesus and now understand who He is. Primarily, Lamb of God who came to take away your sin. Following Jesus is first and foremost the expression of our need to be forgiven and of our recognition, well, that He's the only one who can do it. So I would call you to that. John the Apostle tells us that on the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and John the Apostle might have been one of them. And as he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the two disciples heard him say this, and then they followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following. And notice what he says to them. He said to them, What are you seeking? Now understand, that's not just a question for them. It's a question for all who would come after Christ. So you taste that and chew that, you savor that, you digest that, you look in the mirror that is that, and you ask yourself, why do I follow Christ? Because what that tells you when you think through is that not everybody follows Jesus for the right reasons. You know, we see an example of that when we skip ahead to John chapter 6, we'll be there sometime in the next couple of months. But what happens there is that Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know the story. He takes the bread and the loaves of fish and He miraculously multiplies it and He feeds all this great multitude and all this great multitude at the end of that day go to bed full and happy and they wake up empty and unhappy. But during the night, Jesus has gone all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee if you know the story. And so what this crowd then does is they seek Him out. And that takes some effort. And finally, when they find Him... What does he say to them? I'm going to paraphrase, but this is the essence of it. He says, hey, you guys did not walk all this way. You did not come following after me. You did not come seeking me. What do you seek? You didn't come seeking me for the right reasons. 
You're not really interested in me and who I am and what my mission is to transform the world and bring redemption to all who believe. You're not interested in serving me. You're not interested in obeying me. You're not interested in really following me. You're not interested in the greater things that I have to offer, so much greater than lunch, for crying out loud. You're here because you want another free lunch. I never said the food always tasted good, did I? That's penetrating. You have to digest that. You can't run by that, or you can, but it won't transform you if you do. I want to run some statements by you. I am really interested in Jesus because, and only because, I want to know that I'm forgiven. Let's be honest. We all want that. Count me in, but not on anything else. I am interested in Jesus because my marriage is in crisis, and I'm thinking that maybe He can help, so I'm willing to give Him a shot. But that's about it. I'm interested in Jesus because He's going to make me a better parent. I'm interested in Jesus because I believe that He has wisdom for living that is going to help me make all of my plans happen. But here's the reality. I'm interested in Jesus only for what He can do for me. I'm not interested in following Jesus. I'm not interested in spending time with Jesus. I'm not interested in getting to know Jesus and obeying Jesus and serving Jesus and giving to Jesus and in surrendering to Jesus my plans and ambitions and goals and dreams and hopes and life. Does that sound familiar? Because that is every person in this room to some degree or another. You have to wrestle with that. And let the Lord, through His Word, begin to purge that out of you that you might authentically and sincerely following Jesus. We are, all of us by nature, a group of free lunchers, man. Seriously. And we need to be otherwise. So Jesus sees these would-be followers, and they're following after Him. And so He says, verse 38, what are you seeking? And they said to Him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So then what are they seeking? Well, they're seeking to spend time with Jesus, to get to know Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to do life with Jesus, to go along with Jesus, to be transformed ultimately by Jesus. And what is His answer? Does He give them an address? Does He give them some GPS coordinates? Does He draw them a map and say, well, you know, I'm staying here. Is that what He does for us? No, it's the same answer. For them and for you and for me, He simply says, come and you will see. Saying, if you want to spend time with me, if you want to learn from me, if you want to do life with me, if you want to be transformed by me, then here's the thing. You need to come along with me, and here comes the key language, on my journey. Moment of honesty. We don't want to go on Jesus' journey. We want Jesus to come on our journey in the event that He might be helpful. But that's not the way that it works, is it? And if you're not rushing through God's Word, but tasting and chewing and savoring every bite with no real goal of having to get through five chapters, you might not get through five words. And yet interacting with what it is that He's saying, then maybe you hear the voice of your Savior saying, oh, no, I'm sorry, but that's just not the way it works. And perhaps He would also say something like, you know, let's consider the comparison and contrast between us. Creator, creature. Now that ought to close the deal right there, but it doesn't. So we'll keep going. King, subject. Getting better? Master, servant. Savior, sinner. Wisdom, foolishness. Light, darkness. Sight, blindness. 
strength, weakness, life, death, God, man. We go on His journey, and that's the greatest thing that we ever get to do. Verse 39, Jesus said to them, come. He's inviting you to come along, you see, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. There you go. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. And then we read, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And now watch what he does, because it just feels so natural. It's kind of like you read it and go, well, of course he would do that. Don't say that too quickly. It says, he first, meaning the first thing that he does after discovering Jesus, found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus looked at him and saw Peter, not only for who he was in that moment, but also for who he, Jesus, would make Peter to be. And he says to him, so you are Simon, the son of John. And then without even asking him permission, he changes his name. He doesn't say, listen, I'm thinking about a new name for you. I think maybe we ought to try it out for a couple of weeks and see how you like it. It sounds a little weird. It's Cephas. It just doesn't kind of, you know, bounce off the ear well, in my opinion at least. But we're going to go with it. Just try it out. Will you play along? Creator, creature. King, subject. Master, servant. Savior. We're his possession, He takes great care of his possessions. He says, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which John then tells us means Peter, and Cephas and Peter both mean rock or stone. Stone. Significant. As you savor that, you start thinking about other statements that Jesus makes to Peter. Probably the most famous statement Jesus makes to Peter is in Matthew 16, where he says to Peter, he goes, I say to you, you are Peter, you are Petros, you are a stone, you are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my, who knows it? Church. So then what is the church? I mean, as you get to know the Word of God and you, you become familiar with its teachings and these concepts, as you develop your imagination and then use your imagination to interact with what the Spirit is trying to teach you through these written words that you're to take in bit by bit, bite by bite, course by course, word by word. What are some of the analogies? You know, I mean, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. The church is referred to... Primarily, I think, by Peter, who speaks of its people as living stones. It's referred to as the temple of Christ. Or let me change that, as the house of God. Stone, house of God. You want to notice these things as you read. Then we read this in verse 43. John says the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee because, you know, I mean, he's, an, he's the boss. And so he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And again, if you're not careful, you're thinking, follow you where? How long is this going to take? Is there a 401k involved in this? When am I going to be back? And Where, Jesus? Jesus? No, no, no. I'm the where. I'm the address. I'm the destination. He's calling us to himself and to his journey. 
So he finds Philip and he says to him, follow me. And now watch what Philip does. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And here we go, because again, it feels so natural. Philip found Nathanael, apparently a friend of him or his, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, um, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said something to him which would have been entirely predictable. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He doesn't say, you know, there's not a lot really happening in Nazareth. He just zeroes out the whole town. Now, why does he do that? Well, I mean, first of all, he knows his Bible, and he knows that the Bible doesn't indicate that the Christ is going to come from Nazareth. It indicates that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. But, of course, since we've all just been through Christmas, we know that he was. He just happened to be primarily raised in Nazareth. But I think what this is really reflecting is a prejudice against the Nazarene Jews. There was sort of a hierarchy that was understood amongst the various Jews and the Jews in the south near Jerusalem and in Judea, looked down upon the Jews to the north in Galilee, and even the Jews in the north in Galilee looked down upon the Jews from Nazareth, and Jesus is from Nazareth. In fact, all through the Gospels you're reading, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. What does that tell you as you take that in and think about it? What does that say to you about the humility of your Savior? What does that say to you about His ability to relate to every single one of us, even in our lowliest places? So Nathaniel says, verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love Philip's response because he's not offended. He doesn't argue. He just says, well, why don't you come check him out? Come and see. The cure to skepticism. And now follow it very carefully. John tells us that Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and just as with Peter, he looked straight through him, just as he does me, just as he does you. And he said of him, Behold, it's a word of sight. Behold, an Israelite, that's important, indeed, in whom there is no, and the next word's also important, deceit. Israelite, deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? It just kind of strikes me as funny. Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You know, you think he'd kind of go, oh, well, you know, thanks, I appreciate that. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, my mom thinks that and everything. But, but there's no deceit in him. So he's on with it. How do you know me? And Jesus answers with a demonstration of his omniscience, of his ability to know and see all things, Nathaniel and you and me, Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And look what that does for Nathaniel's faith. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then Jesus said to him, and this is a key verse, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So you have Israel, you have deceit, you have the heavens open, you have angels ascending and descending. What does that remind you of? Because if you're not speeding through and you're considering this story in light of its setting, and I don't just mean the Gospel of John, I mean the whole of the Bible. 
It's got to make you think about Jacob. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, whom God renames during the story of his life, Israel, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver, he is a grasper, he is a grabber, and he very, very famously has a vision of heaven opening and angels ascending and descending upon a God who declares that he is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and thus also of Jacob. You see, you're meant to pause and consider his story. Jacob, if you remember, was the the younger of twin sons that were born to Isaac and Rebekah, his older brother. And it's significant that he's the older brother, was named Esau. And if you recall, as they're being delivered, Esau is delivered first and Jacob doesn't like it. He's grabbing on to the heel of Esau as if to say, what belongs to the firstborn, well, actually really ought to be mine. The firstborn gets the birthright. That's the privilege of succession to their father Isaac. Status, double inheritance, the whole shoot and match. And the firstborn also customarily would get the blessing, which at least in that family conferred power and dominion and the prosperity of God upon the one blessed. Even in the womb they wrestle, and as they're delivered, Jacob is hanging on to his heel. He's a grabber, a grasper, a supplanter, and he seeks to take what is not his, at least by birth, through deceit. If you know the story, Jacob hates Esau, Esau hates Jacob, so this whole story is going to make you feel good about your kids and their relationship. I'm going to tell you that straight up. Really, seriously, everybody's going to go home and go, well, at least we're not them. They hate each other, but God loves Jacob. And again, if you know the story, God comes to Isaac and Rebekah before the boys are even born and says, I favor the younger one. He's my choice. He is the one through whom the nation of Israel is going to be born. I will rename him someday Israel, and he's going to have how many sons? Twelve, from which the twelve tribes of Israel will one day descend. So Isaac and Rebekah know God's opinion before the children are born, but here's the problem. Isaac likes Esau better. And so he decides that I'm still going to give him the birthright and the blessing. It should be his because he's the oldest, but not in this case where God has made his favor known. Nevertheless, that's what I'm going to do. And Jacob, who knows all of these things, instead of waiting for God to give them to him in faith, well, he lives out his name. He's a deceiver. He's a grabber. He's a grasper. He's a schemer. And he's a brilliant schemer. His brother Esau goes off hunting one day, and you know, I mean, Esau comes back and he's starving. He's driven by his appetites, this man. And there's Jacob, no doubt, waiting for him, you know, cooking up the red bean stew. In comes Esau and says, hey man, I'm starving, please give me some of your stew. And Jacob says, yeah, sure, no, oh, you know what, wait a minute, let's make a deal. I'll give you a bowl of chili, and you give me your birthright, which is absolutely precious. And we are so quick to condemn Esau, who definitely shows his character, because he goes for, oh, sure, yeah, take what is precious, give me the chili, and, and we jump all over him and think how ridiculous he is, and then we do the same thing all the time. We sell our purity for a bowl of chili. We sell our integrity for a bowl of chili, really. We take the moral authority that we could lead our family with, effectively, right? And then we just trade it away for a bowl of soup 
for something that, comparatively speaking, is nothing. Don't be too quick to jump on Esau. So Jacob has the birthright in his grasp, but he's yet to get the blessing. And the day comes when Isaac, the father, and he's very old at this time, and his eyes have gone dim, and so he's blind. And he calls Esau in. Little does he know that his wife is listening in. And he says to Esau, today is the day. Shh, don't tell anybody just, you know, because I don't want your mom to know because she favors your brother. Again, feel good about your home. But today's the day, and I'm going to give you the blessing. So now I want you to go out. I want you to hunt. I want you to kill. I want you to use your secret family recipe to cook up that whatever, the way that I like it cooked up, just like you do. And I want you to bring it to me, and I'm going to eat it, and then I'm going to give you the blessing that I know should really go to your brother. So Esau goes off hunting, and Rebecca, who overhears the whole deal, runs off and grabs Jacob and says, okay, got a short window of opportunity here. we got to spring into action. And so they scheme and dream, and they create a plan by which Jacob takes on the identity of his brother. They, cook, they kill an animal and cook it up according to Esau's secret family recipe that I guess Rebecca has pirated off his computer or something. He puts on Esau's clothes. You're like, why is father's blind? Well, he still has the sense of smell. They're very careful. He takes the skins of animals, and this is not a, probably something that you know Esau would be necessarily proud of, and he puts it on his arms because he's smooth-skinned. And Esau is like one of those guys that takes his shirt off at the beach and looks like a bear, I guess. He's a hairy man. And he brings the food to his father. And it tastes like Esau's food. And he smells like Esau. He has him come close. He feels his arms and he's like, man, you feel like Esau, but your voice is the voice of Jacob. And he can't see him, so his eyes have failed him too. There's one sense that doesn't fail him. It's his hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How often do we deny in our own lives what we know to be true? We have heard the Word, but we don't live it because we want to please some other senses. Don't be too quick to judge Isaac either. So he blesses Jacob, thinking that he's blessing Esau, and Esau comes home, and he finds out what happens, and then he starts a different kind of a hunting trip. And he wants to kill his brother, and Isaac and Rebekah take Jacob, and they send him away. But they don't send him away primarily to save him from Esau. They send him away to find a bride. So the Son of God the Father, his choice son, is sent by his father alone to a foreign land in search of a bride. And then we read this in Genesis 28, verse 10. It'll be on the screens. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. So what, what's the point of this? He's camping. He's sleeping out in the open places. He has no place to lay his head. And that's fair because it talks about what he does with his head, where he lays his head. And listen for words you've heard before. Taking one of the Peters taking one of the stones of the place. He put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed, and behold, and here comes the vision. There was a ladder set up on earth. It means literally it was placed towards the earth, the idea being that it came down from heaven. The heavens are opened, and the ladder has come down. It's a staircase. It's probably a, a ziggurat. 
It comes down from heaven, connecting heaven and earth. It doesn't go up from heaven. We need heaven to come to us. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels, he wants you to see them. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Sound familiar? And behold, also the Lord, the only question then being, well, what Lord? Well, how would Jesus answer that question? How would John answer that question? And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your offspring, to the twelve tribes that will come forth from your twelve sons that you will have. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring, literally your seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's commanding him to spread out and to fill with blessing through his seed. Behold, I am with you, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And then if you know the story, Jacob wakes up, he pours oil on this rock, on this stone, and he renames the place Bethel, which means house of God. And he reorients his whole life. And he vows to pay a tithe to the Lord of all that he has. So right out of the gate, he's a level one giver. Bam. Just like that. Which manifests his change heart, doesn't it? Because previously he was a grabber, he was a grasper, he was a taker. And now what is he doing? He's a giver. He's putting it all in the bag and saying, here, he's holding it all with an open hand. And having done that and taken that vow, he then gets up and he goes off to find his bride. And that is the story that Jesus is recalling in the statement to Nathaniel, but even more significantly, perhaps in some sense, that John is calling us to recall as he very carefully and artfully gives to us the story of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus. He's presenting him to us. And he's presenting him to us, among other ways, as the new and true Jacob. And see, if you just play with the categories and think about it for a minute, you'll see that. I mean, who is Jesus Christ? He is the chosen Son of Father God. John has already told us. We beheld his glory, the glory is of the only Son of the Father, sent by the Father alone from heaven into the foreign land of this earth to find a bride who faced the rejection of the religious establishment of his day, his brothers, if you will, who envied him, who hated him, who actively sought to kill him. They haunted him. Who slept out in the open places and by his own testimony tells you he had no place to lay his head. Even as Jacob had 12 sons, Jesus calls how many disciples? 12. That's not a coincidence. And John has kind of emphasized two of them in this story today, the first of which is Simon, whom Jesus renames Cephas or Peter, which means stone, and to which Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my house, I will build my church. But more than that, John also singles out Nathaniel, to whom Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. 
And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is a direct reference to the vision that Jacob had. So then, who is John saying that Jesus is? For that matter, who is Jesus saying that Jesus is? He is saying, remember that God? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the one who unites heaven and earth? That would be me. It's Jesus who, unlike Jacob, doesn't take advantage of us in our hour of need to take from us. But He comes to our rescue that He might give His birthright to us. It's Jesus who takes upon our identity, but not to steal our blessing, but to take our curse from us, really, and to give us His blessing. It's Jesus who, through His twelve disciples, founded and is evermore founding a new and true Israel. What does Paul say? He says, the new and true Israel... The Israelites indeed, they're not the ones with the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins. They're the ones with the faith of Abraham coursing through their lives. There's your house of God. There's your Israel. And how is he building his house today? He's spreading it abroad, and he commands us to go that way, does he not? to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and not to some little piece of real estate in Palestine. No, the true Jacob is a far greater Jacob, and he has a far greater vision. It's the vision for the whole world. He sends us out to do what ought to come naturally to us, to give ourselves to Christ in service to Him, and to tell other people about Jesus, and to meet their skepticism how? With the invitation you know, to come and see. It's a marvelous apologetic, really. And as we go, we go with Him, and we know that, for in Matthew 28, verse 19, very famous verse also, He says, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and what? And behold, I am with you always.'" to the end of the age. So that's the kind of stuff that's in the Bible. That's the kind of feast that's like, you know, it's just it's there. That's the kind of thing that you can engage in as you come to it and as you come to know it and as you come to be transformed by it. The way to eat it is slow, careful, thoughtful, prayerful. Asking God to open up your imagination. It's to think of each little bit in light of the whole and to let the Spirit speak to you as you interact with it. What are you saying to me, Lord, in all of this? If you take it in that way, well, then it will feed your faith and it will nourish your soul and it will transform your life. And that's the goal this year, to know Jesus, to live like Him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the glory of our Savior as we see it. God, in Your Word, we thank You for this man, the Apostle John, the instrument through whom You have written this great and glorious good news about our Lord. And we pray that as we come to it week by week, day by day, God, that You would open it up to us, that You would reveal it to us bit by bit and bite by bite, That you would do it in such a way that we take it in, God, and that we're transformed by it into those who are no longer interested just in free lunches from the Lord, 
but who are genuinely interested in following him, having seen him, having come to know and trust him. And so, God, we pray that for this place and for this church, and we pray that primarily for your glory as well as for ourselves individually, but then also for this city and the world. We ask, Lord, that you would draw us unto yourself as only your spirit can do and that you would transform us through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.